So, hi, Ida! So today's class is going to be very conceptual. We're going to work through it step by step. We're going to try to go slow. <laughs> We're going to have to get it. We're going to have to get it. Sometimes things are so, like, mind-boggling. You say, you know what? Not for me. I can't get it. I'm not smart enough. That only works in some areas. Certain things that apply to you, even if you're not smart enough to get it intellectually, you get it anyway. Hi, Debbie. Welcome. Long time no see. You're going to get it anyway. And the reason why you're going to get it anyway is because it's important to you. There was this famous Hasidic master that one of his students said to him, he said, I don't understand. You never forget anything you learn of Torah. Like, what kind of mind do you have? You must be a genius. He said, let me ask you about your wedding. Do you remember who came to your wedding? He said, yeah. You remember who was the caterer, what the music was like? He's like, yeah. He goes, wow, your wedding was such a long time ago. How do you remember all those details? He's like, but it was my wedding. He said, well, every time I learn Torah, it's so important to me like a wedding. I'll never forget it. So when something is so important to you, like you know those kids that like fail at school and suddenly they remember all the scores and the, the, the weights of the baseball players? Because it's important to them. So this is complex stuff. I'm telling you right now, what we're learning today is gonna to be complex, but because it's important to us, our existence as Jewish people, we're just gonna to have to get it. We're gonna to have to identify with it, and we're gonna to have to get it. And what better month than this month, which is the month of Elul. <laughs> the month of Elul, which is um, the month before the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Actually, the first day of Elul is when Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses went up again on Har Sinai, on, on Mount Sinai in order to ask Hashem for forgiveness because the Jewish people served a golden calf. And so starting from Rosh Chodesh Elul until finally on Yom Kippur, when Hashem forgave the Jewish people, this is a spe specially uh, opportune time for Jewish people to become close to Hashem. They're called Yemei Ratzon, days of goodwill. And this is a time that Hashem is so readily available. The author of the Tanya gives an example of a king who's on the way to his palace. And as he's on the way to his palace, He's walking through the fields and he's greeting all the people in the fields and saying hello with a smiley face. They're not, they didn't make an appointment to see him. They're in the regular work clothes, but he's so accessible to them. And this month of Elo, hi, Hashem is so accessible to us that when we're going to study these complex ideas, we're going to get it because it's such an opportune time. And our concept of time in the Jewish calendar is unique and it's about the energies that are available. Like you could say, okay, we celebrate Passover. We're celebrating the season of freedom that our Jewish people were freed all those years ago. Actually, Passover happened then, but every single year on Passover, the energy of freedom is available. And that's, so that's the interesting thing about Hanukkah. It tells us in the Talmud about Hanukkah that the miracle happened, and then the next year is when the sages established it as a holiday. Why did they wait till the next year to establish it as a holiday? I get it that, hi! I get it that the first time, amazing to see you. I get it that the first time that there, that was the miracle happened, so they didn't celebrate it as a holiday, but why did they wait till the next year to decide it's gonna be a holiday? So the Kedushat Levi, that was a colleague of the Alter Rebbe, a Hasidic master, and he wrote in his work about Hanukkah that they waited till the next year to see if the same energy that happened the first year of Hanukkah 
Was it a one-time event or is it the energy of that season? And when they realize it's the energy of the season, they establish it for a holiday forever. That Hanukkah is a time where we can grab onto the energy that was available the first Hanukkah. And so that's how it is right now. During these 40 days, from the first day of Elul until Yom Kippur, it was, it's a time of forgiveness and closeness to Hashem where Hashem is so readily available to us. So we're going to harness that power and we're going to utilize it for our class today and hopefully it's not too complex if, if it's too up there then we'll stop and we'll try to concretize it and make it something that we understand there's a story of a chassid his name was Reb Matal Molestish he lived a very very long time ago and um, he was known to be extremely of a humble character and he was always studying one time he was study, he was walking and you know studying in his mind and he didn't notice that he was falling into a ditch because he was so absorbed. So he falls into a ditch and he can't get out. And he's like, oh, I'm not just going to waste time. I have like a copy of the, of the Rebbe's Hasidic discourse in my pocket. I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to study. So while he's studying, sitting in the ditch, he's reading this copy. And somebody walks by. He's like, what's the matter with you? Are you trying to do self-mortification? He goes, self-mortification. I couldn't get out of here. I didn't want to waste time. <laughs> he was such a humble person. And in the same town as him, there was a very wealthy man called Reb Itzela the Gvir. Reb Itzela the wealthy man. And he was a very big Baal Tzedakah. He used to give a lot of Tzedakah, but he was also very egotistical. And so one time they were at a gathering together and, and he, he, he got on a high the chassid got on a very high Reb Matala and he said to Reb Itzala, he said, Reb Itzala, I'm telling you, if one time you will say, Ain't sof baruch hu, the Ain't sof baruch hu means the infinite one, blessed be he. If you will say, the infinite one, blessed be, me, be he. If you will mention Hashem's name, the whole world is going to be different for you. Now, possibly, but in speaking of this story, one of the uh, Hasidic mashpiyim explained that it's similar to the anecdote that is told, recounted in the Talmud. In the Talmud speaks about Rachav. Rachav was the woman who, when um, Yehoshua, Moses' successor, was bringing the Jews to Eretz Yisrael, he himself sent spies, and they, she hid them. She, she lived at the, the border of the city. She hid them. Her profession was not a very good profession. <laughs> she was a harlot. And she was very, very beautiful. And in speaking of her in the Talmud, the sages described her as being so beautiful that if somebody just said her name, they would say Rachav, they would immediately have a physical reaction to her name. So mm. one of the sages said, I'm saying her name, Rachav, nothing happens to me. They said, no, no, no. You have to be somebody who knew her. It doesn't help to say her name. You have to be somebody who recognizes her. So, so in speak, taking, taking this story and then moving it upwards to what we were talking about before, for Reb Matil, when he said, Eitzof Baruchu, he knew what it meant. The whole world changed just by saying Hashem's name. For somebody who didn't have the background knowledge, it doesn't help to just say, it doesn't help to just say, ain't so, but that's what we're trying to get at this class. We want to reach such a realization that all of a sudden you say, ain't so baruchu, and everything is different for you. So we're, we're aiming for that, okay? Right now, we're, we're following what we began in chapters 18 to 19. In 18 to 19, we were reminded that we have a natural love of Hashem, and therefore, it is very, very accessible to keep all of the Torah with love and fear with our heart. If we can keep the entire Torah without missing anything. And it could be very, very with, much within reach. And you can say, one second. How could it be very much within reach? Come on, it's difficult. So we learn it's not that difficult. You actually have this love that never is going to go away, even if you wanted to. And with this love, you can keep 
you can have love and fear of Hashem, you can be careful and never miss a mitzvah. And we, we then looked at the fact that a Jewish person would be willing to die rather than go against Hashem. But all of this really only explains why it is that it's very near for a Jewish person to never worship an idol. But how high? How does it explain how it's very near to a Jew to never miss a mitzvah? So this is what the altar is going to explain right now. Because that's exactly what we were trying to do all this time, right? We were saying we have this atomic bomb that would explode in a Jewish threatening situation. But we don't want to just live with the bomb of all of a sudden being threatened in a situation. We want to be able to tap into the energy and let it inform our everyday consciousness. So that's what we're going to try to do right now. We're going to take our realization that we would rather die rather than serve an idol and let it inform our whole consciousness, the way we behave every single day. I'm going to tell a story that I, that I told before. I don't know how many people remember it because it was a while ago, but this, oh, sorry. <laughs> this story uh, kind of brings it home for me. And this is a story that, of a woman who ran away from Iran. She, her, they were very, very wealthy. And one day, some thugs came into her husband's store and unfortunately shot him. And she found out about it, and she had to escape with her children in the middle of the night. She couldn't sell her house or anything. She had to just take whatever she could in a few bags. She made an arrangement with some guide who used to lead the people over to Turkey with camels and donkeys. And she couldn't tell the kids even what happened. She told them they're going shopping. And she packed some cash and some whatever jewelry she had. And they started going and they met this guy at the edge of the city. And he, and he, I'm sorry, I just wanted to make sure it was on. And he, um, took them for 18 hours at a time on camels, and they had to do such dangerous things and, and crossing bridges. And, and so every, every once in a while, it would be too difficult. And she would say, listen, she was a, you know, a woman with four children. One of them was a baby. Her and her oldest child would take turns carrying the baby. And she would say, listen, I, I can't do it. And the first time she said that, he pulled out a gun. And he said, if you don't do it, I'm going to shoot you, and I'll shoot all the kids. <laughs> So she had to listen. And then she kept going. And then all of a sudden, like they were coming to literally a bridge made out of rope. And I can't. Pulled out a gun. He said, I'm going to shoot you. I'll shoot the kids. And she like was angry at the man. That's what gave her the energy to just go. And then when they get finally to Turkey, he says, let me tell you guys that I'm Jewish too. And I'm so proud of you. Each one of you is a hero. He gives them each of the children a hug. And he says, excuse me for my rough behavior all along, but if I didn't threaten you with the gun, you would have died. And I had to be so gruff with you in order to make sure that you follow along. And what was he doing? If these people would have said, okay, I can't cross the bridge, right? What were they doing? Essentially, they were giving up life. They would be dead. It wouldn't happen instantly. It would happen in maybe in a few days. Do they want to die? No, they don't want to die. So what did he do? He brought out a gun. He said, you want to die? No, 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 we don't want to die. So they keep moving. He was just crystallizing the effect of their choice. He was showing them, look, he was bringing them face to face with it. Here, it's like somewhere in the back of their mind, we're in danger, but are we about to die? They didn't think of themselves as about to die if they don't have the courage to cross the bridge. So he had to bring it very clear to them, their survival instinct. You don't want to die, you want to live. He brought the gun out. And that's what we want to do over here. We have this mechanism that is invoked every time we're in a Jewish threatening situation. If we feel like 
it's between us and Hashem. No way. Who's going who's gonna to bow down to an idol? We would rather die, right? But we have to come to the realization that it's not just bowing down to idols. They're, all the mitzvahs and all the averas are an expression of our relationship with Hashem. And this is what the Alter Rebbe is going to teach us here in this chapter. We're not going to rely on, oh, he's a great sage, and we believe him because he's a great sage, because then we're back to square one. We're back to faith. Faith is a hovering experience that doesn't inform our everyday behavior. We want to internalize it. We want to get it so that it change, changes our perceptions. Okay, so with that, we begin chapter 20. Baba what? Sali was uh, tagged. Baba Sali, the shul right here. Saw. Yeah. What does that mean? Baba, so it's a shul right here. It's yeah. A shul, and they wrote giant <gasps> letters of free Palestine all over it. Um, the one Everybody's okay? Yeah. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. It's crazy. Sorry, that was the video. It's just <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so in the previous chapters, the Alter Rebbe discussed the Torah's assertion that it is very near to us to fulfill all of the commandments with the love and fear of Hashem. He explained that it is indeed very near by means of the natural love of Hashem, which is inherent in every Jew. He further stated that this love stems from the faculty of Chachma of the divine soul, in which the light of the Ein Sof is clothed. This love is the source of a Jew's power of self-sacrifice. It, it, was, it, it is what inspires every Jew, regardless of his spiritual stature, to forfeit his life rather than deny Hashem's unity. In fact, were a Jew to feel, feel that sin tears him away from Hashem, he would never sin. His love of Hashem and fear of separation from him would not permit it. It is only the spirit of folly inspired by the klipa, the self-delusion that sin does not weaken his attachment to God, that allows him to sin. But when he is confronted with an attempt to coerce him to practice idolatry, for example, no such delusion is possible. Hi, welcome! Clearly, he is being torn away from God. Thereupon, a Jew's inherent love of Hashem is aroused, and even the most hardened sinner willingly suffers martyrdom for his faith in the one God. This same power of self-sacrifice, says the Alter Rebbe, can enable a Jew to refrain from every transgression and to fulfill all of the commandments. But if, in fact, only a clear challenge to one's faith, such as idolatry, arouses and activates one's hidden love, how can this love serve to motivate one's observance of all the commandments? The Alter Rebbe begins to provide the answer in this chapter by explaining the relationship of the positive commandments the precept of belief in God's unity stated in the first of the ten commandments I am the Lord God your Lord and all the prohibitive commandments to the prohibition of idolatry the second commandment in the Decalogue you shall have no other gods hi okay everybody has a copy Sophia you have one and here's for Shelly okay okay great that's for you okay I'm sorry the question is how, how can this love serve to motivate someone's observance of all commandments by observing them? <coughs> the, the, the question is, how does the, can this love motivate to us to observe all the commandments? We know that this love motivates us to never deny God and to proclaim that He is the one God. So it's easy for us because we have this love that's just aroused. But how could this love make us keep all of the commandments? And this is exactly what the Alter Rebbe is going to tell us right here as these lines come up. He's going to, what are the, what are the first, okay, one second. It is well known that the positive commandment to believe in God's unity and the admonition concerning idolatry, which form the first two commandments in the Decalogue, I am God and you shall have no other gods, comprise the entire Torah. Basically, a Jew 
would give up his life for these two commandments. The first two commandments are this. I, I, are this. I, I am God, your God. That's the positive expression of it. You shall have no other gods. These two, I am your God. You shall not have any other gods. These are the two commandments that a Jew just naturally dies for rather than transgresses. So the altar is telling us, you think it's just these two commandments? We learn that these two commandments are actually include within them the entire Torah. For the commandment, I am God, contains all the 248 positive precepts, while the commandment, you shall have no other gods, contains all the 365 prohibitive commandments. So on, you could say like this, you could say, I understand that these two commandments, in order to keep the Torah, you need to believe that God is God. But we're not just saying that. We're not just saying in order to keep the Torah, you need to accept God as God. That's why. You can say in a very simple level without being too complex or theoretical. You can say the reason why these two mitzvahs are the basis for the whole Torah is because why keep a mitzvah if you don't believe in God, right? The, the premise of keeping a mitzvah is because you accept that God is God. But we're not just saying that. We're saying that in these two commandments, the entire Torah is contained. All the positive commandments are contained in the one commandment. I am God, your God. All of the negative commandments are contained in the commandment, you shall have no other gods. Okay, we're going to get into this more deeply. That, that is why we heard only these two commandments, I am and you shall not have, directly from God, while the other eight commandments were transmitted by Moses, as our sages have said, for they are the sum to- total of the entire Torah. So what happened was, at the giving of the law, at Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, God said the first two commandments. You'll notice that the language of the first two commandments is different than all the other commandments. First of all, he's speaking in first person. He's saying, I am God, you're God. In the other commandments, he said, um, do, not, do not swear in God's name in vain. In God's name. He's not saying in my name. The first two commandments are God speaking in first person. The Talmud teaches us that at each of these two utterances, God said the first commandment to the Jewish people directly to them, they died. They couldn't handle the divine revelation. They were revived again by the, by the dew of Torah. They were revived. Special, the special dew that Hashem will revive the dead with at the end of when Mashiach comes. So they died the first time. Then he said, you shall not have any other gods. They died again. So they said, listen, Moses, we don't want to die anymore. <laughs> We, don't, we need to hear it from you. It's too much for us to handle. So the other eight commandments were transmitted by Moses. But you can say, well, we only heard the, the other eight commandments. We heard them from Moses. We didn't hear them directly from God. But by Hashem saying these two commandments to us directly, in essence, he gave us the entire Torah. The Talmud tells us like this. It says, Torah tziva lanu Moshe marashakilas Yaakov. The Torah that Moses commanded us is an inheritance to the congregation of Jacob. Rabbi Simlai says, if you take the word Torah and add up the letters, because in Hebrew, letters have a numerical value. So Taf is 400, and Vav is 6, Resh is 200, and He is 5. That equals 611. There are 613 commandments, right? 613 minus 2, because we hear 2 from God. This other 611 were commanded to us by Moses. Torah, Tzivalanu Moshe, 611 commandments were commanded to us by Moses because the first two we heard from God himself. Also, Hashem speaks in the singular. It says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha. In Hebrew, 
In English, you say you to many people, you say you to one person. In Hebrew, it's not like that. There's a special way of saying you individually, and then there's another way of saying you in plural. The first two commandments is you individually. The, to- the, the, mission, the Yaakov Shemayini tells us, the Midrash tells us, that when the Jewish people heard, I am God, your God, you shall not have any other gods, you personally, Hashem was speaking personally, each person said, the divine speech is speaking with me. They felt like Hashem was talking just to them. It was a special way of Hashem communicating with each and every one of us individually. So these two commandments comprise the entire Torah. We heard these two from God alone. And by Him giving us these two, He gave us the entire Torah. Can I stop you for one yes. I'm, I apologize that I do have to leave early today. I told a few of the ladies, but I just want to remind everybody before I leave, but we do have a holiday tomorrow night. So if anyone would like to sign up online, it's at 6.45 tomorrow night. Just wanted to keep you in the, in the loop, but please continue. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thus, we actually heard the entire Torah from God himself, for all the commandments are contained within these two, as are particulars within a generalization. Therefore, just as one's love of God motivates him to obey these two commandments, even at the expense of his life, it may also serve to motivate him to observe all the commandments. However, this concept requires further clarification. Why should all the positive precepts be considered an affirmation of God's unity? Why should all the prohibitions be manifestations of idol worship? It is readily understood that belief is God, uh, in God is the basis of all the commandments. The Mechilta illustrates this idea by the parable of a king who entered a land. He was requested by the populace to provide them with a system of laws. To this, the king replied, First accept me as your king. Afterwards, I will issue my decrees. In the same way, belief in the one God constitutes the foundation upon which all the other commandments are built. But why should the first two commandments regarding God's unity be considered the sum total of the entire Torah, all the other commandments being merely an extension of them? The explanation is based on a deeper understanding of the concept of the unity of God. God's unity means not only that there is only one creator, but that there is only one existing being. All of existence is absolutely nullified before him and completely one with him. Therefore, when one acts in defiance of God's will, as expressed in the commandments, he sets himself apart from God as though he were a separate and independent entity. This constitutes a denial of God's unity, and the transgressor is therefore considered an idolater. This the Alter Rebbe now explains in detail. So, we understand, we say, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Achad. Hero Israel, God, our, Hashem, God is our Lord, God is one. So we're not just saying God is one, meaning God is the only authority. He's the only God. Nobody else has power over us. We're saying more than that. And this Val Shem Tov really brought home. He explained to us how it's not just God is the only authority. He is the only being. There is absolutely no being outside of God. God is the only existence, and all of existence is not an existence outside of God. There is no such thing. A person, he, he said like this in the second paragraph of Shema, it says, And you will turn away and you will serve. In this, in this um, section of Shema, Moses is warning the Jewish people, admonishing them to keep faithful to Hashem. And he says, and if you will turn away and you will serve foreign gods. So he says, Vesartem va'avadatem elokim achem, and you will turn away and you will serve foreign gods. The Baal Shem Tov explains this to mean, the second that you turn away, the second that you lose focus that God is the only being, it's already a form of idolatry. 
Turning your back on God is a form of idolatry. It's not that God is just the only power. He's the only existence. And we need to understand what this means. In order to elucidate this matter clearly, we must first briefly speak of the idea and the essence of of the idea and the essence of the unity of God, who is called one and unique. First, we must understand the essential meaning of this phrase, which lends itself to various interpretations, that there is only one God, one creator, that he is one being, not a compound of various powers, and so on. So this idea is called Achdos Hashem, the unity of God. Rabbi Chaim Miller in the Practical Tanya, he uses the term called non-dual Judaism. It's not just that God is, is one, and there's no other God. There's nothing else in this world outside of him. This is an idea that we're going to have to like get it in our heads so that it changes us. It is, this was the focus of the author of, the entire, of the Tanya's entire life. His son said about him that this is what my father lives his life for. Every single Shabbos when he spoke, every single person that he spoke to in a private audience, it was to drive this idea home, the, the idea of the unity of Hashem, that Hashem is the sole existence. In fact, the story is told about him before he became the Rebbe. He was visiting his own Rebbe, the Magad of Mizrich. On the way, he stayed, off, he stayed by a colleague of the Magad of Mizrich, uh, a student of the Baal Shem Tov, called Repinchas Karetz. Karetzer. He was from the town of Karetz. So Repinchas Karetz meets the Alter Rebbe. You can imagine what a gifted and unique individual the Alter Rebbe was. He wanted him to be his own student. He was a student of the Magad. He wanted to win him over to be his student. So that night, Rapinchas revealed to the Alter Rebbe deep secrets about the angels and what goes on in supernal spheres. And when it came time to go, the next day he said, listen, what a Jew has to know is the unity of Hashem, Achtas Hashem, the way the unity is expressed on a higher level, the way the unity is expressed on a lower level. This we learned in Mizrich, and he left. To know all these secrets about angels and everything, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. But what's the purpose of it all? We can't forget the purpose. The purpose is to really get the idea that Hashem is one. And he's not just one as in the only authority. He is the only being. We have to come to understand that. So we are... That's right. That's the, that's the, that's the realization that we have to get. Because we're going to now talk about the nullity of creation. How creation is... Absolutely nothing. And the point of to say that it's absolutely nothing is not so that we say it's nothing, because it is a something, and we'll talk about it. It's not to say how far we are from Hashem. It's exactly as you said, to express how close we are to Hashem, that we are actually a part of Hashem himself. There is nothing outside of him. And vice versa. And, and, and vice versa, meaning that if somebody feels themselves as part of Hashem, then they throw themselves into the abyss of nothingness. I mean, uh, part of when he breathed uh-huh. to us, he, it's part of... We're saying that we have an neshama and that's part of him. We're looking right now at creation as a whole. The Talmud says about God, it says one of the ways we call God is hamakom. That means the place. And the Talmud expre- explains this expression as he is the place of the world and the world is not his place. The world is found within Hashem. Hashem is not found within, the, not that he's not found, God forbid, but it's not that he, th- there's a place and Hashem is in the place. 
He is the place. He is the place. The place. The world exists within him. We have to come to understand that. As soon as we come to understand that, as soon as that little wheel turns and there's a there's come a transformation, <laughs> things will be different. We'll think differently. It will definitely be accessible for us to keep the entire Torah. We need to get this realization. There is no other existence outside of Hashem. So the author was going to explain that to us right here. This is something that he explains. He says over here briefly. The place where he gives this a very um, much bigger treatment is in the section, second section of Tainik called Shar HaYechad Ve'amunah, the gate of faith and unity. And over there, he quotes the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov quotes David HaMelech in Tehillim, saying, L'aylam Hashem devar Forever, O God, your word exists in the heavens. And the Baal Shem Tov explained this as meaning, the word that you said, Yehi Rakia, let there be a firmament, those words are forever standing in the heavens to give them energy and bring them into life because without that energy, it would cease to be. The whole world, and this is what we're going to discuss right over here, all, what is creation? All of creation is really but the word of Hashem. Okay, so we're, Hashem is not just called Echad. The Alt Rebbe says he's called Yachid Umiyuchad. One and unique, singularly unique. He's not just one means that he's one, and there's a reason why we call Hashem one. That's to express how he is found in all of creation. He's not a composite entity. But one could also mean that there's a second, such as when we speak about creation. The Torah speaks about creation. It says, Yom Echad, one day. And then there's the account goes on to tell us about a second day and a third day. The fact that there's a first day doesn't negate that there's anything that follows. But that's, So that's why our sages also use the term Yachet Umiyuchad, singular and uniquely sing, and unique to show us that there's nothing outside of him, there's nothing that compares to him, he is alone. All believe that he is one alone, now after creation, exactly as he was before the world was created, when he was obviously alone, since nothing else had come into being. So, so too, now after creation, nothing exists apart from him. This is part of the, the prayers from the High Holidays of Rosh Hashanah. Um, we say, everybody believes that he is alone. Just now, just now, after creation, as he was before creation. Before creation, obviously he was alone. We're saying, even after creation, he's still alone. Rabbi Steinsel gives the example of a person fathering a child. When that one fathers a second, he's changed forever. That's not the case with Hashem. Hashem made creation, and yet he is still the same. He is one alone. Now, after creation, Exactly the way he was before creation. As it is written in the prayer book, you are he who was before the world was created, you are he who is since the world was created. If the meaning of this passage were only that God is eternal without beginning or end, it could have been stated simply, you were before the world was created. Why the circumlocution of you are he who was before the world was created. It's taking the term who. Who means he in Hebrew. And see, saying it again. You are he before the world was created. You are he after the world was created. It means that he, he is the same he. The very same he. There has been no change at all. He is exactly the same. He is still all alone. 
This emphasis provided by the repeated phrase, you are he who, means you are exactly the same he before and after creation without any change. As it is written, I the Lord have not changed since creation. Since God is still one alone despite the presence of the myriad beings, as the Alter Rebbe goes on to explain. So the prophet Malachi says, Ani Hashem Shanisi, I God have not changed. And simply meaning, he does not undergo changes like we undergo changes. You know, sometimes a human being is happy, other times they're sad, they experience cold or hunger. God does not experience any of these things. He remains exactly the same. In Hilchas Yitzhah at the beginning of Maimonides' work, he explains this. It says, you know, he explains how God does not need any of us beings, we need him, and he does not depend on any of us or all of us, none of us. He does not undergo any changes what, whatsoever. And the Torah speaks about, you know, like in Tehillim it says, like, Yeshiv Bashamayim Yishak, he who sits in heaven shall laugh. What do these expressions mean? The prophet says, Ha'aisi, Ha'aisi, hey mach isim, are they angering me? Basically, it's impossible to truly anger Hashem. The Torah speaks in these terms, our, our sages explain to us. The Torah speaks in the language of the human being so that we can understand something. The Torah uses these expressions when speaking of Hashem. But Hashem essentially never changes. And these changes that we speak about in the human experience do not apply at all to Hashem. For this world, and likewise all the supernal worlds, do not affect any change in his unity by their having been created out of a state of nothingness. Okay, so in Divrei Hayamim it says, Lecha Hashem Hagdula. To you, Hashem, is, the, is greatness. And in Talmud explains what does it mean, the greatness. Greatness means my separation, the act of creation. We say, to you, Hashem, is greatness. We are attributing the greatness of creation to Hashem. And what does that mean? It means when a, it says, like the prophet says, the Nevi Yeshaya says, Se'u maram or umi bara Raise your eyes heavenwards and see who has created all of these. When you ponder creation, when you look around and see, you truly think about the vastness of the universe, you will be astounded. It will make you realize the greatness of Hashem. Now, so we're, we're taking the term Gedula, and we're calling Gedula greatness creation. So we're saying to you, Hashem, is greatness. Greatness meaning creation. You are, so in a simple sense, it means God, you are so great. If we ponder your creation, we are utterly astounded by you. But now let's l- visit the word greatness again and look at another way the sages use the word greatness. They say, Wherever you find the greatness of God, there you also find his humility. So in a simple sense, what does that mean? Every time it says that God is so great, it also tells us in the very same verse how he is so humble. He is, he is the, the, you know, the great judge, and then he says he is there for the, the poor and the widowed. Every time it mentions his greatness, at this very same instance, it will also mention his humility. So that's in a very simple sense. But now let's look at this phrase again. Wherever you, greatness is creation, okay? And wherever you find God's greatness, you find his humility. The, the Magad of Mezrish explains, that was the Alter Rebbe's teacher. He explains that greatness being creation is a humility for Hashem. The fact that Hashem created the world is an act of lowering and humility for him. We're seeing 
creation as being great, and it is great in our eyes. But let's look at it in Hashem's terms. The act of creation, where you find Hashem's greatness, there is you find His humility. In fact, speaking of the, the it says Ba'asar, it tells us the Mishnah tells us in Perkiyavis Ba'asar Ma'amaris Ha'ilam, the world was created with ten utterances. In the Zohar, it's referring to these ten utterances. It calls them Milin Dehedyaita, words of a simpleton. The word hedyite is actually a Greek word. It's from the, in, in English we say idiot. It means a simpleton. It's calling these ten utterances, the Zohar calls the ten utterances which Hash, with which Hashem created the world, the words of a simpleton. It says, it's not the way of a king to speak in the words of a simpleton. So this act of creation is but the word of Hashem. And what kind of word of Hashem? The word of a simpleton. So now we are establishing that all of creation is the word of Hashem. That's what it says. Hashem nasu. With the word of Hashem, the heavens were created. In order to understand the essence of creation, we need to understand what does it mean, the word of God. What is the word of Hashem? We want to, we want to understand creation. We want to get to the core of it. What, what characterizes it? What is it? Well, we have to know it's the word of God. What is the word of God? So now the Alter Rebbe is going to explain to us what is the word of God. Okay, so I'm, before he explains to us the word of God, I'm just going to move up a little bit. Just as God was one alone, single and unique before they were created, so is he one alone, single and unique after he created them. How can it be so? What of all the creatures that exist besides him? Yes, it is so because all is not besides him, as if absolutely non-existent. The author of it now goes on to clarify this point. His explanation in brief, all of creation came about through the word of God. As we see with man, one word has no value whatever next to his power of speech, which is, has the capacity to allow him to speak on endlessly. Even, it has even less value when compared to one's power of thought, the source of speech next to the soul itself, once derived both thought and speech, one word or even many words is certainly a non-entity. How much more so then that, that in comparison to God who is infinite, his word, which represents his creative and animative powers, is as totally non-existent. So here, the example that we're using is one word and compare to the essence of the soul. We're going to take it level by level. We're going to compare the one word com- to the articulate power of the soul, and then we're going to compare it to, to the value of speech within a person, then we'll compare it to the person himself, and we'll come to realize really essentially what is a word. But we're, we're not trying to say here that creation doesn't exist. Okay, the Torah tells us explicitly that God created the world. That's what it says. In the beginning, Hashem created heaven and earth. So Hashem said the world was created. In fact, if we would say the world's not created, what value would there be to Torah and mitzvahs, right? If the, if the scroll of the Torah is an illusion and the, and the tefillin are an illusion and Shabbos candles are an illusion, what are we accomplishing by being an illusion and manipulating an illusion? It's not an illusion. We have to understand that the world is real insofar as it exists within Hashem. As an existence for itself, it is absolute nothingness. So we're not coming to say the world is nothing. We're coming to say the world is something, but it's not a reality for itself. It's a reality that's dependent on Hashem. Like think of electricity. You know, you're going to say that this robot is walking and talking. It's not walking and talking if it doesn't have any power. 
as long as it's connected to electricity and the electricity has to continue to give it the energy, it will continue. As soon as you pull the plug, it's over. It's like you say, if you want to destroy ent any entity in this world, let's say a table, right? You say, how am I going to destroy the table? Okay, I'll smash it into pieces. It's still pieces. I'll burn it in a fire. There's still ashes. Whatever you're going to do, there's going to be something, maybe of a changed <coughs> form, but something remaining of the table. The singular way, the, the one and only way to get rid of the table is to remove the word of God that vivifies it. It is simply in existence. Create, it says in, in the blessings preceding Shema, we say, He, in his goodness, renews the act of creation every single day. God is constantly renewing creation. The Baal Shem Tov says, what is, what is nature? Nature is miracles in succession. The fact that the world exists right this moment is an act new. Hashem constantly has to recreate the world. If not for him recreating this world constantly, it would cease to be. Like you ever saw those like hair dryer experiments? They ever kids do it at the science fair? Where they, they blow the hair dryer and they put this like ping pong ball and it stays up in the air. It's like sucked into this thing and it stays up in the air. Are you gonna say now the ball has become a flying ball? It has a new power and it's a ball that is able to be suspended in the air. You're not going to say that. As soon as you shut off the hairdryer, there goes the ball. And that's what creation is. It's nothing for itself. Creation is the word of God that continuously speaks it into existence. And in order for the world to continue to be, it has to be constantly renewed by Hashem. This is the concept as it is explained in Shara Yechev Amuna. Here, when we describe the word of God, we're taking it from a different aspect. We're, learning, we're looking at the significance in the of the word in relation to its speaker. And we're going to come to realize that this whole world, what we consider the word of God, what is it in compared to the essence of Hashem? It's like the, the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, says somewhere else, this is not the essence of divinity, that, word, that worlds come out from him. That's not what describes divinity. The fact that words, worlds come out from Hashem, come into existence from Hashem, that's not what describes the divine. We don't have a way to truly describe the divine, right? But the fact that he created the world, that's not how we describe the divine. This is something so external and extrinsic to him. So um, we'll stop here. I'm going to recap what we said until now. And then next class, we're going to compare the value of the word to its speaker. So we said that, first of all, these two commandments that we were willing to give up our life for, in fact, encapsulate the entire Torah. Every single positive commandment it is an expression of, I am God, your God. Every single negative commandment is a, a, a way of not to transgress, you shall not have any other gods. Transgressing is a way of idol worship. And then we started to say, in order to understand, we want to understand this, right? In order to understand it, we have to understand what is idol worship. But in order to understand what is idol worship, we need to understand the idea of what is Hashem. What is the unity of Hashem? What does it mean that Hashem is one? So it's not just that he's the only authority. He is actually the only existence. And creation has not changed him at all. Hashem is exactly the same now before creation as he was, I mean, after creation as he was before creation. And what is creation? Creation is but the word of God. In the next class, we're going to analyze what is a word. We're going to look at a word in our own experience. And then we're going to take our experience and apply it to the divine. And, you know, we have to make things real in a way that we understand it. Um, 
one of the examples given is of a drop of an ocean compared to the whole ocean. Or you can say, and we'll discuss this at length next class. Or one, a person once expressed himself. He said, what is the world already? The world is just a small village. So his friend started up with him and said, how could you say the world is a small village? The world is absolutely nothing. But he worked on himself to a level to come to the realization, at least, that the world is a small village. If you come to say, well, what is the world already? The world is just a drop of water compared to all the vast oceans. And you could say, a drop of water compared to the vast oceans? I mean, if there is some comparison. What is the ocean? After all, it's made up of tiny drops of water. Okay. But you actually have to sit with that. First, you speak to yourself in a way that you understand. Because if you don't speak to yourself in a way you understand, you're never going to change. It has to be that you get it, and it changes you. So whatever, un until, until you get it in that conception, you can work up to another conception. But think, if you think of one tiny drop, just think of this whole room, okay? Not the whole world. Think of just this entire room. We couldn't even count how many drops of water could fill this entire room, okay? Now, think that the entire creation, the vast creation, outer space, all of its galaxies, the Earth, and all of its riches constitutes but one tiny drop. And the vast ocean, that is Torah and Mitzvahs. If you compare that, it's astounding. It, you have to speak to yourself in a way that you get it. You know, it's like uh, a, a children's teacher, a Malamed from the olden days. He said, if you speak to me and you say a thousand rubles, I get it. For the thousand rubles, it's much more than I have, and I can figure out what I can buy with a thousand rubles. If you start speaking to me about 10,000 rubles, to me it doesn't mean anything. You might as well say 100,000 rubles, you might as well say a million rubles. I have no way of relating to that sum of money. It's the same thing. We have to talk to ourselves, everybody in their own way, in a way that we relate to. Once we start speaking beyond our, our own worlds, you might as well talk gibberish. It doesn't, doesn't, you're not going anywhere. So we have to first take it in a way that we relate to, and then as our horizons expand, we can move up further. So this is class till this for today, and then next week we will move on to uh, part two and any questions. Yeah, I wanted to say something. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was in Florida. We went to this museum. It's, um, it has like a IMAX with the whole screen. It's like, you know, and it talks about galaxy. Uh -huh. and, my daughter, and my daughter's amazing, crazy about galaxy. And I was with a friend. She's very Christian. And um, on this uh, video, was showing actually how the galaxy works and the gray matter. But it's this huge energy. And then it's it, it, in at the end, it says, even if there was no gray matter, even us humans would not be here. And then my friend goes, that's why my kids don't believe in God anymore. Then I go to her, the problem is that you, you, you're teaching your daughters that God is a thing. So we always have that image that, I mean, you always have that image that God is, needs us something in order to have the, its power. But it's, it, it's within. If you, don't, if you don't keep up, if you don't um, add some knowledge or add some power, some strength to it, there's no God that yeah. it's going to disappear. Yeah. So it was so interesting, this thing. It was like really nice how they actually kind of like attaching today's subjects, you know, the whole gray matter, energy, uh, fields into the religious part of like Judaism. To understand, so, it's always been. It's always yes. been. Yeah, I'm and actually reading a book right now that is it compares. Uh -huh. I I I also enjoy a lot about like uh, quantum physics and uh -huh. stuff like this, yeah. and it's incredible how it's so connected. Yeah, it's 
it's been there forever. It's yeah. just that nowadays they're having the, the scientists, they're proving. Exactly. <laughs> it's just tapping into the energy, like the energy for cell phones, right? Or the energy for anything that we have nowadays was there since creation. It was there, you know, 5,779 years ago. It's just that we didn't have any tools to tap into the energy. The knowledge that we have now it was always there. It was just now we have a chance to tap into it. And we're so lucky and we're so blessed. And as long as people are going to think of God as themselves only a million times greater, that's not God. <laughs> God is infinite. And as long as we think of, of then a certain number of steps that we can take, and then voila, <laughs> that's not how it works. It's an unbridgeable gap. As soon as we understand that, then we can understand something of what God is. Yeah, that God is not a thing. Yeah. So basically, by what we're learning, we are leading up to that fourth question, how the awe of God comes. So, so we answer that question at the end of chapter 19. At the end of chapter 19, we explain that there is the, the awe included in fear is that a Jew would never want to be separated. At a, right, that we answered. But what we're doing now is chapters 18 and 19 explain to us this love of God that we have. And, but we understood only how it operates insofar as it comes to the first two commandments. Now we want to wire into that potential. We want to max it out, cash it in. And we want to let it inform our everyday behavior. So we're saying, hey, it's not just about these two commandments. It's actually about the entire Torah. Here we're looking at it as, okay, at this point, that's when a Jew is ready to die. That's when a Jew says, okay, forget it. I'm, there's no way I'm doing this. But over here we're saying it's not just this. It's the but whole Torah. The is that all? Is this the, no, the, no, the, the then? That all. Uh, the the awe was that he, would, he was so afraid even to touch the, the impurity of idol worship. He, he recoils from even touching the impurity of idol worship. Because love will, will get you to do nice things, but it won't stop you from doing something that the other person doesn't like necessarily. There has to be the element of fear. We're calling it fear, but <laughs> awe or respect. Mm -hmm. That's what keeps you from transgressing. So it's not about just that they love God and that's why they're giving up their life. It's that within this love, there's this fear of not wanting to touch anything that has to do with idol worship. Okay, so the, you also talked about the manifestation of chokhmah being in sleep, yeah, which would be explaining me. Wait, so it's not the manifestation of chachma that's asleep. The manifestation of chachma is an exile. That is, it's the, if you don't understand that you have that divine power, power yeah, divine soul within you. Wait, but no, but what, I'm sorry. The reason why I interrupted you because there were two aspects to chachma that we described. We described the manifestation of chachma, and then we described the essence and the core of chachma. So the core is there. The core is there, but it's it's in exile. No, the the manifestation is in exile, and the core is asleep. The difference between exile and sleep was that the manifest the the exile means you use your energy to even to ruin your own self. God forbid. The sleep is it's just not. It's there, it's not using its energy for anything else, but it's not either speaking up. Okay. So we're talking about now that core, that's sleeping, and then all of a sudden it just brought into explosion at an instant, a Jewish threatening instance, where it's like, how, you, you believe in Hashem or not? So now word comes in? So now we're explaining how every single mitzvah is an expression of 
I, these two commandments. I, I affirm the, the oneness of God, and I would not bow down to an idol. And in order to understand what I, we want to, in order to understand how every mitzvah is an expression of affirming the unity of God, and every transgression is a uh, manifestation of not so serving idol that? worship, we need to understand what idol worship is. In order to understand what I, it's the multi-level experience. I said, we're, it's going to take us through chapter 25. In order to understand what, I should speak to everybody, sorry for my back. In order to understand what idol worship is, we need to understand what the unity of God is. And that's what we're doing right now. We're in the middle of it. In this chapter, we're saying all of creation is but the word of God. So we want to get it in one second. We're going to have to work through it. Because if we get it in one second, it's going to be the same where it was. Faith. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, isn't there a, a place or in the Siddur, a part of it, in a prayer says, Ahavat ve'yirat shamayim. They go together. You love Hashem, but if you don't fear Hashem, then you really can't love and respect Him all the way. Hashem is everything. It's Ahavat ve'yirat shamayim. You need both. That's right. You need both. You need both. That's exactly how... Because love motivates you to keep all the positive mitzvahs. Fear keeps you from transgressing all the negative ones. And, and in chapter 41 in Tanya, and a lot of people use this as a meditation before they pray every day, the Altar Rebbe explains that even though um, love motivates all the 248 positive commandments, even to keep those, you still need a minimal level of fear. The beginning of everything is the minimal level of fear that you do not want to rebel against the king of kings. Absolutely. I mean, it's an incredible meditation, actually, because he brings us to realize that Hashem created all the universes, upper and lower, and he specifically focuses on the Jewish people. And then among the Jewish people, people he specifically focuses on you. Because the Talmud says, a person has to say, Bishvili nevaha olam. The world was created just for my sake. And Maimonides explains that to me, that every single time we act, we think the whole world is in my hands, and my, I'm gonna, my one act is either going to bring it to the scale positively or, God forbid, negatively. The whole world depends on me. So when a person thinks, comes to that realization that yeah, he created these vast universes, right? And what is he interested in? The Jewish people. And the Jewish people, who is he interested in? He's interested in me. And he wants to know, am I serving him as, as he wants me to? Um, there's 365 mitzvot that are what? And 248? 248 positive commandments and 365 negative, com- negative prohibitive. Pro- prohibitive commandments. So, so uh, it's explained like this. Two, 248 comp- um, uh, in relation to the 248 limbs of the body. Every single organ says, do a mitzvah with me. 365, um, corresponding to the 365 days of the lunar year. Every single day says, do not transgress on me. So this is a way to kind of remember. 248 positive commands and 300, they're right in the beginning, right? So it says it in here, right here. On the first page. All, so on the bottom. Somewhere on the bottom. So how don't you lose it by meditation? How do what if you do meditation in the morning, but you confront <laughs> a challenge? That's, yeah. that's how you need to... That's why if meditation has to work. If it's not working, then if, even if you face it, you, have, you meditate, and then you have this... You, that sh- the shaman you have inside of you, kind of like you're making 
higher and higher. And then you're just stronger in order to face yeah. their fears. We did, we did kind of visit this a little bit in chapter 12 where we were speaking about the Benoni and Davening. And at that time when he's praying and he's in his deep level of realization, he, he wouldn't even think otherwise. At the rest of the day, he no longer has that strong feeling like, oh my gosh, the world doesn't exist. But he still has the conviction in his mind that he had when he had the strong feeling. So the strong feeling may not last with him all day. You know, you get this like moments of inspiration and you, at that moment you're at tzaddik. You would never do anything wrong until your child throws your face on the floor. <laughs> at that moment you may not feel like a tzaddik anymore, but you feel like you have the power to control yourself because you are in the presence of Hashem. You remember the conviction that you had at the time when you had that great feeling. The feeling will come, you know, come and go. It will wax and wane. But the conviction has to remain constant. And that's what we're working for. It's an exercise. So may Hashem bless our efforts with success. Amen. <laughs>